Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Quick, what percentage of the annual U.S. federal budget do you think is spent on foreign aid? Hold on to that number for a moment. What percentage do you think the U.S. should spend annually on foreign aid? The average American, not you, of course, because AJC Passport listeners are all above average, but the average American thinks that the U.S. spends up to 26% of the annual budget on foreign aid. But in truth, less than 1% of the U.S. budget goes to such foreign assistance, a number that the average American actually thinks is too low. The Trump administration is making foreign aid a central topic of discussion as it proposes deep cuts in spending, including hundreds of millions of dollars that would have gone to support the Palestinians. Joining us once again to discuss the value of this funding is Chaverat Hapod, friend of the pod, Dr. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. Tamara is a senior fellow for Middle East policy at the Brookings Institution, and before that served in the Obama administration as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy and Human Rights in the Middle East. She is also a co-host of one of my other favorite podcasts, Rational Security. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So what is the purpose of U.S. aid to the Palestinians in the first place? Okay, well, I think when we talk about American assistance to the Palestinians, we're usually talking about two very different kinds of aid. The first is the money that the United States gives directly in the West Bank or in Gaza, either to the Palestinian Authority itself or to the private sector and NGOs that are doing humanitarian work, educational work, uh, or private sector growth, mostly in the West Bank. Um, There's also assistance that the U.S. government gives that benefits Palestinians, Uh, It gives that money to the United Nations, to UNRWA, or the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is responsible for the welfare of Palestinian refugees, both in the West Bank and Gaza, but also elsewhere in the Middle East, in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon. And now the Trump administration is proposing cuts, actually, I think, to both of those types, to the money that the U.S. gives to UNRWA, they're proposing a $350 million cut, and to USAID projects in the West Bank. Is that right, that that's what's being cut? And what is their rationale? Sure. Yeah, you are right, Tuffy. The the cuts are uh, to both of those kinds of assistance. Uh, the, The U.S. government and the Trump administration had already... Uh, announced a desire to reduce its contribution to UNRWA, uh, arguing that other countries should be giving more, particularly countries uh, from the Arab world. And the United States has traditionally been the largest international donor to UNRWA. So there was a desire to have more burden sharing, which is a theme we've seen from the Trump administration in lots of places. Um, But this latest announcement is that they want to eliminate American funding to UNRWA completely. And that is not about burden sharing. That's uh, about an approach toward the Palestinians uh, in the negotiations or in the attempt to resurrect uh, negotiations over uh, Palestinian-Israeli settlement. Um, And that's why it's combined with cuts also to the money that the U.S. spends directly in the West Bank and Gaza, 
as far as I can understand this approach, um, <laughs> it's sort of a two-pronged pressure on the Palestinian leadership. Uh, number one, to say, we're not going to subsidize your lives while you're not making peace. <laughs> and also, the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be for you. The, the less comfortable your situation and the less favorable the United States will be toward your concerns. So I think the argument for this aid is one that's implicit in some of what you said earlier and has been championed by many people, Americans, Israelis, Palestinians, perhaps most prominently by former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, who has joined us on AJC Passport before and, and who our, our listeners are, are quite familiar with. Um, they say that, you know, basically aid is a is a stabilizing force and we want the Palestinian society to be as stable as possible so that children are are in schools, you know, often provided by UNRWA and not in the streets throwing rocks. On the other hand, many politicians on the Israeli right, including, for example, current member of Knesset and former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, which doubtless is also a name that's familiar to many of our listeners, they make the case, similar to what you just kind of encapsulated for the Trump administration, that this aid has effectively rewarded Palestinian leaders for bad behavior. They never negotiated in good faith. They never had the aim of reaching a solution, these people would say, because they were under no pressure to do so. So is there some truth to both sides? Or do you come down decisively on, on one? Well, look, I think part of what you're seeing in this debate is the clash between sort of pragmatic security and stability considerations and, uh, and more political considerations, both on the American side and on the Israeli side. And, and I'll explain by what I mean by that in just a minute. The practical security considerations, look, I don't think anyone in the Israeli security establishment would argue that this aid is um, just making things worse or uh, doesn't make a difference. I think they would all argue that it is of positive value in stabilizing a situation on the ground, as you said, making sure kids are in school so they're not idle, uh, but also reducing unemployment, developing a Palestinian private sector that in many cases through these programs is working with the Israeli private sector, in other words, building people-to-people ties and growing a Palestinian uh, sector that is independent of the PLO, independent of the Palestinian Authority. Um, So there is a lot of good that's done through these programs that help stabilize the situation in the absence of a negotiated solution. And the question is, if you're going to cut that aid, and remove that stabilizing force, what are you replacing it with? Do you have a viable negotiating process? Do you have some other means of preventing those negative outcomes? And I don't see the Trump administration offering any alternative right now. I think that's why you see a lot of concern being raised um, by Americans who were involved in Israeli-Palestinian relations about these cuts to assistance. The political considerations, however, are a bit different. I mean, first of all, from the Trump administration's perspective, they're disruptors in foreign policy. They've done that in relations with Canada and Mexico, relations with NATO. They're doing it here in the Israeli-Palestinian arena, too. I'm not sure that's just their perspective. I think everyone would say say that they're being disruptive. Yeah, I I guess (laughs) what I'm arguing is that they see that as a as a positive thing, right. because the status quo, in their view, is insufficient or unsatisfactory. 
But I think for a lot of Israelis and Palestinians who live with the reality on the ground, the status quo is not perfect, not by any means, but disruption can be very, very dangerous. And so I think the Trump administration's disruptive approach applied to this context uh, presents a lot of risk that, that people in the Trump administration themselves don't feel and may not uh, have to confront the consequences of. But Israelis and Palestinians do. For people like Michael Oren or Naftali Bennett in the Israeli government, I think it's a bit of a different calculation, which is that elections are coming soon. Mm -hmm. And so this is a moment when Israeli leaders um, are appealing more to the kind of sentiments of the electorate, uh, their frustrations, their uh, their resentment of the status quo, and not so much to those pragmatic security considerations that uh, that at the end of the day might actually drive Israeli policy. Right. An excellent point. And by the way, just for our listeners, I'll note that in something of a nod to that pragmatism, the Trump administration has not, at least not yet, expressed any designs to take away the $60 million of aid that the U.S. gives to Palestinian security forces. So maybe that's insufficient because there are all these other things that would be cut that would kind of snowball into a security crisis. But Israel especially has been quite vocal in in the important role that the Palestinian security forces play in maintaining a non-warlike status quo? Well, I would say more than that. I would say that uh, Israeli-Palestinian security coordination has been the backbone of stability in the West Bank. It is the reason the entire Israeli security establishment will tell you it's the reason why there hasn't been a third intifada. It's the reason why the Palestinian Authority is still in power and hasn't been overwhelmed uh, by protests or an intifada against its um, hold on power. And so Israeli-Palestinian security coordination is absolutely kind of the spine of providing stability, but that security coordination doesn't work in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I think one lesson, actually, that the United States itself has learned in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, in all of these situations where it has been fighting insurgencies and terrorist movements, and it's a lesson that the Israeli military establishment knows very well. Also, it's that you don't win militarily alone mm-hmm. against an insurgent group or a terrorist group. You don't just outfight them. You have to outgovern them. Uh, and so it, the security coordination assistance alone, I just don't think is going to be sufficient to maintain uh, the kind of environment that Israeli security officials consider necessary uh, for the safety of Israelis and the stability of the of the unresolved conflict. Now, Tamara, there's another rumor circulating about the U.S. and the Palestinians, and that is that the administration is pushing to change the way that Palestinian refugees are counted. What's the backstory there? Well, so this gets to the second prong of what I see as the Trump administration's uh, pressure approach to the Palestinians. They came into office, I think, with genuine hope that they would be able to work with both sides and come up with some new proposals to relaunch final status negotiations. Um, But at the same time, President Trump had apparently made a campaign promise he felt compelled to keep about moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And when he announced that move in December and announced almost at the same time 
that in making that move, he was taking Jerusalem off the table of final status talks, the Palestinian side decided to cut off engagement with the United States over a renewed peace process. Now, I think that was a very short-sighted and self-destructive decision, but that's the decision they took. And in response, I think the Trump administration's approach has been, well, let's show them the price of disengaging. <laughs> let's show them the price of staying away from the table. Uh, and I, I see their move on UNRWA as uh, an attempt to say, okay, we've taken Jerusalem off the table. If you guys don't come back to that table, we might take right of return off the table as well. In other words, some of the final status issues that are um, at the core of Palestinian desires for a final status agreement, um, this administration is saying that the U.S. position is going to shift hard against them unless they re-engage. Now, just to dive into this a bit more, so the right of return that you're referring to is that Palestinian refugees would, and and there there's kind of a whole spectrum of right of return ranging from you know some token number of seventy plus year old Palestinians who previously lived inside Israel proper prior to 1948 returning into Israel, maybe a few thousand as a gesture, all the way to the maximalist kind of view of that, which is that any Palestinian alive to Today, even if you know they were born half a century or more after 1948, would be able to go to Israel and kind of claim citizenship. So that's kind of the nightmare scenario that a lot of people talk about, which is that there would be a Palestinian state created in the West Bank and Gaza, or perhaps two Palestinian states created in the West Bank and Gaza, and then Israel would just become another Arab state as Palestinians exercise that so-called right of return to kind of overflow or outnumber the Jewish population in Israel. So, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people in the organized American Jewish community and and Jewish communities around the world, and certainly in Israel, would actually welcome is this kind of right-sizing of the number of refugees from people who may be great-great-grandchildren of the actual refugee generation to specifically referring to those people who were displaced. But that, it cuts right to the core of the Palestinian national narrative. You just answered the question very helpfully of, you know, why the Trump administration is thinking about this, what their aim might be. But what would it mean on the ground for Palestinians and for Israelis and Palestinians if this were to take place? Okay, so I I think that's a great way to think about it, Stephanie, because there is the symbolic narrative dimension that you just laid out very well, I think, both for Israelis and supporters of Israel uh, who uh, see uh, the, the right of return, as Palestinians have articulated it, as a threat to um, the sovereignty of a Jewish state in its homeland, and the idea of a two-state solution being that Palestinians will express their self-determination and sovereignty in their state, and uh, Jews will be able to do it in their state. And so Palestinians should return to a Palestinian state and not to Israel. Um, and, and that symbolic resonance on the Palestinian side is that uh, many of these families were displaced from areas that are within 1948 Israel, those, that, those are their ancestral homes. Um, and under international law, uh, the, the argument is they have a right either to return or to just compensation. 
Now, that's the narrative. As a practical matter, um, there are not just the generation who were displaced in 1948 or in 1967, um, but there are generations of Palestinians who have grown up as refugees who remain stateless. That is, they have no other citizenship. Um, Palestinian refugees living in camps in Syria, in Lebanon, who get their health care from UNRWA, whose kids go to UNRWA schools, they don't have citizenship anywhere else in the world. They are stateless people. Uh, and so there's a practical question of what will become of those people. Um, even under the definition of refugee that other parts of the United Nations use, that the, that the broader UN refugee agency uses, those uh, second and third generations, if they remain displaced and stateless, would qualify as refugees. Um, so I think, you know, what the Trump administration is doing here is saying, uh, look, this is an agency that was created for a particular purpose that's ballooned. It's become a sort of placeholder um, that's taken on a much larger scope of activity than it was ever imagined to have. It needs reform. And maybe it's even getting in the way of negotiations because its continued existence um, relieves pressure on the Palestinian leadership to find practical solutions for Palestinian refugees. It relieves pressure on the Arab countries that host these refugees to find practical solutions for them. And that's true as far as it goes. Um, but I think that the, there are two caveats I would articulate uh, for American consideration of such a move. The first is that American policy, very longstanding, um, is to adhere to the agreement, the multiple agreements negotiated between Israelis and Palestinians that say that the status of Palestinian refugees, along with Jerusalem, along with borders, and along with the state of settlement, these four issues are to be negotiated between Israelis and Palestinians. So for the United States to sort of unilaterally take a position on this issue is to override agreements that Israelis and Palestinians themselves have committed to. That's one policy consideration. The other policy consideration, I think, is something that we also saw in the case of the embassy move decision. Um, it's one thing to move our embassy to the place that Israel uh, has declared it as, as its capital, and there's no question that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's another thing to say we've taken Jerusalem off the table of the final status talks. It was that latter statement by President Trump that was sort of a cut at the hopes of Palestinians that in negotiations with Israel they would be able to press their claims and come to a compromise that they could accept. Uh, and reducing hope is always a dangerous thing in an ongoing conflict. What I worry about with a potential U.S. policy move on the definition of refugee uh, and withholding U.S. aid to change that definition is that, again, it would be cutting out the hopes of Palestinians that in negotiations with Israel, they would come to a resolution of the refugee issue that they felt was a just compromise. The more hope you take away with nothing to replace it, the more volatile the situation becomes. 
Tamara, thank you so much for guiding us through these tricky issues. My pleasure to talk to you as always. Jeremy Corbyn needs to demonstrate publicly, unequivocally, his support for Jewish people, his support for Jewish causes, that's easy. But as well, his outright opposition to all forms of anti-Semitism, his action plan for dealing with it, both within the Labour Party, on the left and in wider society, and his unequivocal support for the Zionist State of Israel. That was John Mann, a British member of parliament from the Labour Party, who joined us on AJC Passport earlier this year to talk about the issue of anti-Semitism in his party. Since that time, the scandal has only grown. Last week, a 2013 video surfaced of party leader Jeremy Corbyn that for many British Jews was the final straw. Corbyn wasn't just palling around with anti-Semites and terrorists. He was actively sharing a stage with them and spouting the hatred from his own mouth. My guest this week is Josh Glancy, the New York correspondent for the Sunday Times, one of the best-selling and best-regarded British papers. He also published a searing indictment of Jeremy Corbyn in the New York Times this week. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to talk with you about your article in the New York Times because it was not just moving, but also measured and well-reasoned. But before we get to that, Can you help us understand Jeremy Corbyn's background? In the U.S., no one had heard of him before his surprise rise to the Labour Party leadership in 2015. Now there's an easy caricature to draw that most of his 60-plus years of life before that moment were spent bounding from one anti-Semitic speech or terrorist photo op to the next. And while that may be a darkly humorous image, I'm sure it can't capture the whole of Jeremy Corbyn. So who is this man who might be the U.K.'s next prime minister? So I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of people in Britain haven't heard of him before he became <laughs> a Labour leader in 2015 either. He, he's been an MP for a very long time, over 20 years, uh, in a constituency called Islington North, so North London. And he's, he's been a fringe character in British politics for a long time. I mean, he's a radical. He supports all sorts of strange causes on the left, some of them very worthwhile, others uh, less so. He, some of the, you know, he considers himself to have been on the right side of history. So wherever, wherever there was a cause and a campaign, there was Jeremy Corbyn. He campaigned against apartheid. He has campaigned for the Palestinians uh, since anyone can remember. Um, and he's a sort of classic character of, you know, the kind of anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist left. America's always responsible for everything. All the ills of the world come back to, to the sort of American axis of capitalism and... And our, our most sincere apologies for that, by the way. Yes, well, quite. No, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's quite a sort of Cold warish worldview, if you know what I mean, where, you know, the world divides into people that like America or don't. Um, so he just kind of nibbled around British politics and, and is not the brightest man you'll ever meet. And just in 2015, almost by accident, got put on the leadership ballot um, there were, against several much more well-known and experienced characters. Um, but there'd been this change in the membership rules for the party. And as you've seen in America as well, there, there is, there's been this kind of surge of anger with the politics as usual, 
um, with the kind there was this kind of populist mood, and suddenly you've got this guy's leader, and no one had really ever thought about what his history was. So you know, suddenly we discover that in and among his campaigning, much of which has been very worthwhile, and he is he has done so many interesting campaigns in his time, but in and amongst it is this quite sinister set of associations. And I think what it's revealed is that something that I guess a lot of Jews have been saying for a long time, which is that if you're on the hard left and you are campaigning very actively against Israel, there is there are a lot of unsavory characters and things being said. And so you have this kind of cavalcade of associations, tangents, you know, people he shared stages with to deny the Holocaust, you know, all these sorts of mounting associations that were making a lot of people very uncomfortable, and, and myself included. But last week, this video that came out and what, what spurred me to write the piece for The Times was that this was something qualitatively different. This was him, in his own words, anti-Semitically abusing uh, a group of Jews. And that, for me was a game changer. I mean, obviously, I'd been feeling a mounting discomfort. But for me, that was that was, you know, that was the evidence I needed to say, well, hang on, I'm out. (laughs) This guy's there's a real problem here. And it's big. And so what specifically was in the video, which I think was from 2013, that surfaced Mm. last week? So basically, he's giving a talk at a at an event in Parliament in, in London. And it's event. It's an event looking at the history of Britain and Palestine, but it's it's promoted by the Al-Qassam Brigade, you know, Hamas's military wing. So, you know, I mean, there's some, in- there's some interesting associations around the event. And he's talking at the event, and he's talking about a speech that the Palestinian authorities' envoy to Britain gave. And at the end of the speech, he was this envoy was upbraided by a small group of, of Zionist activists. And... Uh, he's describing the Zionists, and he and he talks about how they need they need two lessons. Uh, the, the two things they don't know they don't know they don't know their history, which if you've ever met a pro-Israel activist is <laughs> likely not to be true. Uh, and secondly, he says, and they clearly have no sense of English irony, even though they've probably lived here all their lives. And that was that's the line that really you cannot look at it, and I've tried look at it every which way. You cannot look at it and not see, if you're looking at it in good faith, not see that he is, you know, he is abusing them on the basis of their ethnicity. If they had been Christian and Zionist, you just wouldn't have said that to them. I think that was the line that most resonated with me because there is this, you know, sometimes difficult line to draw between when someone is being critical of Israel or of Israel's policies or of Israel's supporters and when they're attacking Jews. And there's so much crystal clarity in that single sentence of your piece that it simply wouldn't have made sense if he had been saying it about Christian Zionists. It would have people would have not understood what he was talking about. But I guess that's the nature of dog whistles is that, you know, you kind of you know them when you hear them and they say the right things to the right people. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Everything up until this point has been about Zionism and about Israel and about other people that, you know, he seems to encourage or seems to be totally deaf to other people's anti-Semitism. And, and that all amounted to a, you know, a case. 
that was pretty convincing. But yes, this was something else. And and what's interesting about this, and I, I mentioned this in the piece, is that it's it's actually not a, it's a different it's a different form. It's a very English form of anti-Semitism. It's not actually about this, you know, the kind of inter- international anti-Semitism of the hard left, where you talk about kind of Jews and the Jewish lobby and Jewish capital and Bibi the puppet master and that sort of thing. It's actually an old-fashioned form of English anti-Semitism, which is is, is kind of about snobbery uh, and it's about class and it's about it's about sort of othering the Jew, which obviously has been done in in Europe, you know, for for millennia. So. It was something quite old-fashioned that slipped out there. What I find really fascinating about this, uh, also in in addition to that, which another really astute point, is that labor is the traditional political home of British Jews. Um, And and not just that. They're not just kind of vestigially voting for labor. They are generally a liberal constituency. They are generally in favor of a two-state solution. I, I would say something like 90% of British Jews will say that they support Israel, but many of them support Israel perhaps in spite of the current government and not because of it. Is Corbyn creating this skewed perception of Jews as this you know, hard-right constituency who are opposed to all the things that the left may hold dear? So that's a really interesting question. Um, the schism between Jews and the Labour Party has been happening for a long time, well before Corbyn. Uh, so historically, Jews and Labour had a very similar relationship to American Jews and the Democrats, where probably three quarters of Jews would vote Labour. Um, you know, when Jewish immigrants came into the East End of London in the turn of the 20th century, you know, they were poor, they were working class, Labour welcome. you know, it was a very classic tale and they were the party of immigrants. Now, that began to change in the sort of 80s and 90s uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, Jews became a lot more prosperous and settled. Um, Margaret Thatcher's government was very pro-Jewish, her Tory government, uh, and had a number of Jewish cabinet members, and there began to be a bit of a shift then. Um, and then it really, really accelerated. Uh, and it's really accelerated in the last decade, Weirdly, it accelerated under Ed Miliband, who was the first Jewish leader of the Labour Party. But he was a Jewish leader who sort of disavowed his Judaism, at least until the very end. So that had been coming for a while. And so I would say the Jewish community in in Britain isn't that left wing anymore. It's probably centre right. But what Corbyn has done is amplified that schism immensely. So I can't imagine more than about 5-10% of Jews will vote for him at the next election. I mean, this, this to me is one of the great tragedies of where it's incredibly sad for me, who's voted Labour my whole life, uh, apart from for Corbyn, is that he's taken what was already a, a sad and troubling schism. I wrote a piece about this for Tablet magazine in 2015 saying, you know, this was before Corbyn saying Jews and Labour, like, it's almost, you know, it, it's always over. Um, because the Labour had bec- also had become increasingly anti-Israel as a party. You know, these, these trends were there before Corbyn. But this last 18 months, two years has destroyed that relationship, you know, for, for who knows how long. But it's, it's, it's really quite a tragedy from my perspective. Josh, will all of what's come to light recently hurt Corbyn? I mean, he doesn't seem the type to resign over something like this. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any prospect that Labour voters say enough is enough and oust him? Or has he so captured the party that his grip on the leadership is safe? So that's, 
yeah, again, really interesting. I mean, I, I sort of wanted to get into this in the time series, so there sort of wasn't room. It, it's not dissimilar to the Trump phenomenon in some ways. I don't like to put too much false equivalence. For all Corbyn's sins, I don't think he's a Donald Trump figure, but there's a lot of similarities in the phenomenon here. In, in Britain, they describe him as the magic grandpa because <laughs> nothing, nothing can touch him. Uh, somehow, he's sort of Teflon... He almost seems to get stronger the more you throw at him for his, from his fans' perspective. Uh, will, it, will it damage him? You know, his base think, all think this is a smear campaign by the right-wing media and by the Jewish community to oust him. So when I wrote that piece, I had hundreds of tweets saying, you know, you know digging up critiques I'd made of Corbyn four years ago, saying, you've always wanted him out, you're just using anti-Semitism as a, as a weapon. And I was like, well... That's really not a very nice thing to say <laughs> to a Jewish person who who actually really cares about this kind of thing. But um, his base will stick by him. He has full control of the machinery of the party, the sort of the equivalent of the DNC, or you know that he's got all his people kind of in situ. And I don't know that that many ordinary British voters know or care about this. Um, scandal it's a bit like the russia scandal in that way as well for trump in that like it's very complicated the evidence is quite nuanced unless you understand the the parameters of the debate um and i think a lot of ordinary voters you know don't aren't that exercised by the odd flicker of anti-semitism it's not it's not something they think about so i don't know that it will affect him that much but i still thought it he, he, so he may win, if, if he wins the election, it'll mainly be because the Conservative Party is a disaster zone for all reasons to do with Brexit. That I will not bore you or any of your listeners, because <laughs> then we'd be here for you know another year. But <laughs> so you know the whole thing's a mess. But I, in answer to your question, I don't think it will massively affect his polling numbers. It certainly hasn't done so far. And so we really do have to think, though, you know, uh, we, we can leave Brexit aside, but we, we do need to think about, you know, in a UK where the current conservative government led by Theresa May is not popular, there is a real chance that he may win a general election. And leaders within the British Jewish community have called him an existential threat. Uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, the well-respected former chief rabbi of the UK, recently called him, quote, an anti-Semite who has given support to racists, terrorists and dealers of hate. I mean, does Jeremy Corbyn imperil the future of British Jewry? What would a Corbyn-led government mean for British Jews? Yeah, that's. I mean, that is the sort of core of the debate that that we're all sort of having at the moment. Uh, I have written a little bit about the the, 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 the three main Jewish newspapers. Well, the three Jewish newspapers in London came out together and published a joint editorial saying he's an existential threat. I've criticised that. I, I find it hyperbolic. And I think there was a day, and I found Rabbi Sachs, who Rabbi Sachs is a man I respect greatly, but I did find his input hyperbolic as well. You know, I think I think we need to take a breath here. Uh, it's bad. It's definitely bad. If he becomes prime minister, it's bad. I mean, the, the scenario I always imagine is Corbyn becomes prime minister, then there's a huge war in Israel. You know, like there was, like the Gaza incursions of, 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 of sort of eight, ten years ago. And I think that atmosphere could get very, very nasty. And I think you would start to see um, people, some people thinking that they don't want to live in that country anymore and moving to America or moving to Israel. I disagree with that. For me, you know, this is totally survivable. I think everyone needs to be a little bit calm and 
you know, Britain's been a haven for Jews for centuries, uh, and we need to put it in its historical context, and, and I think it'll be fine. Well, everyone should read Josh's article, which we will link to in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about Jeremy Corbyn and the future of British Jewry. We look forward to uh, chatting with you again. Well, thank you for having me. It was really great. And thank you for your excellent question. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? John McCain, good for the Jews? Along with the rest of the country, we at AJC were deeply saddened this weekend by the death of Senator John McCain, who served the United States as a sailor, a congressman, and a senator over a 60-year career in public life. Senator McCain represents more than just a type of honor and dignity in politics that often feels today to be in short supply. We also considered him a dear friend of American Jews and Israel. In his 2014 address to the AJC Global Forum, which we'll link to in the show notes, he spoke with great respect and affection about American Jews and also expressed his deep love of Israel. In an interview last year, Jake Tapper of CNN asked McCain how he would want to be remembered. McCain answered, quote, he served his country and not always right made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of errors, but served his country. And I hope we could add, honorably. We certainly can, Senator. As he showed many times throughout his life, John McCain is good for the Jews. And may his memory be a blessing. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.